The great wonder in this city is that the China Tea Company can sell such good teas and coffees at the low prices they are charging at 85 East Genesee Street. Hi there, this is Hugh Yeeman, and you're listening to Historic Headlines, the podcast where we gain historical insight by examining newspaper articles from 50, 100, and 150 years ago this week. There's too much confusion. I can't get no relief. Future Hugh here, letting you know about a couple of errors I made in the beginning of what's to follow. Well, actually, one alteration and one error. The alteration is that I called this episode 42. It ended up being episode 43 because I was doing my late uh, guerrilla-style recording uh, with no editing, and that was all going great, but then my wife came home with our toddler about five or ten minutes before I was going to be done, and then various stuff happened in the intervening six weeks. I did not have the bandwidth to do any recording, and just now I came back and finished up Uh, You'll probably notice a difference in the sound quality right around the time when the writer mentions uh, Situate, the the town of Situate, where Samuel J. May had a pastorate. The other... Let me see. Oh, the other... uh, The actual mistake that I made was uh, I made a reference to, you know, maybe, maybe I'll stop having these... Uh, episodes of my brain slowing down to half speed uh, after another 38 episodes. I meant to say 58 episodes. I don't know why I said 38, but the idea is I know that I'm not good at this. I know that I shouldn't expect to be good at this sort of uh, monologuing into a microphone. And when I started out, I set myself the vague tentative goal of, well, maybe by the time I've done 100 episodes, this podcast won't suck. So, again, it's a work in progress, and I hope my little brain vapor locks don't detract too much from the overall experience. And now I'm going to give the mic to past Hugh from six weeks ago. Enjoy! Hey there, and welcome to episode 42. Speaking of tea, tonight I'm having one of my favorite blends. I've already spoken to you about this, so I'll make this short. It's that blend with uh, one part of Scottish breakfast tea by Oliver Pluff and one part McNulty's Yunnan China Black. 
And there you just saw my brain slowing down to one-half speed the moment the microphone is on. Let's see if that improves over the next 38 episodes. I've been thinking today about how disappointed I was in the previous episode. I really got a little bit more enraged than I intend to while doing the podcast because I don't think I don't think the rage serves my purpose. It's it's not easy to walk that knife edge between cold clinical historicity on the one hand and gibbering rage on the other. Neither one is what I want. I want to share my passion because this is worth getting passionate about. But the passion that I want to share is a historical one. I want to convey that the rhetoric that we use or fail to use around racial violence has not changed one whit in the last century and a half plus. And we have to reckon with that history of racial violence if we're going to move forward. Obviously, in the last episode, I hope it's obvious, I wasn't really mad at the New York Herald of 1871. I'm angry that the rhetoric in the New York Herald of 1871 is still with us today. And it's that failure to engage that prompted me to do this series of episodes on Reverend Samuel J. May. Because as I said last time, I would like to be some small part of counteracting the turning away. How many people know the name Samuel J. May today? At the time of his funeral, 150 years and a week or so ago, People were hopeful that that name would still be known at this point. I would say they would be disappointed that in only 150 years, his name would be mostly forgotten by the community. And I would like to be some small part of counteracting that. To that end, let's look in on the Syracuse Daily Standard of Friday, July 7th, 1871. I'm devoting an entire episode to this five-plus column account of Samuel J. May's funeral and interment. One of the reasons for that is that the language in a lot of the services is deeply moving. The other reason is I want to show you the perspective that's unique to a newspaper reporter, because there are a couple of things that you won't find in the next episode, which will be based on a pamphlet that was published after the funeral. In this account, I want you to pay special attention to the sites and the sounds. 
The late Reverend Samuel J. May, funeral services yesterday. Address of William Lloyd Garrison and Reverend W.P. Tilden of Boston, Bishop Logwin, C.D.B. Mills, Reverend S.R. Calthrop of Syracuse, President Andrew D. White of Cornell University, Reverend T.J. Mumford of Dorster, Reverend E.W. Mundy of Syracuse. The funeral services of the late Reverend Samuel Joseph May, former pastor of the Unitarian Church, Syracuse, took place yesterday afternoon in the church where he had labored for a quarter of a century. The exercises were not of the usual character. Mr. May was widely known. So many interests had found in him an able advocate, it seemed more appropriate that many should indicate the extent of his worth. What that general testimony was, how eloquently and feelingly it was expressed, how it moved to tears a large congregation, can be inferred from the report below. The services at the church were announced to commence at 2.30 p.m., but long before that hour, long before the church doors were opened, steps and yard and street in front of the church were filled with waiting people. The coffin had been borne from the house of the deceased in James Street early in the forenoon and had stood up to one o'clock open in front of the pulpit. There the remains were looked upon by very many people of the city and by others still who had come from abroad. At half-past two o'clock the doors were opened and almost immediately the rear half of the pews were filled, the front pews being reserved for the friends of the deceased, the clergy, and board of education. The Decorations the church was simply yet beautifully decorated with black and white material, with white flowers and evergreens. From the pulpit arch in graceful segments depended strips of broadcloth which were continued in alternate folds of black and white, around the side walls and across the organ loft. At regular distances between the light and dark folds were hung wreaths of clematis and evergreen. From the highest point of the arch and from the chandeliers depended baskets made entirely of white lilies, clematis, ivy, and evergreens. The chandeliers were partially ascended by evergreens, fastened at the highest point by a knot of black and white ribbon. <clears throat> the preacher's desk, altar, and altar rails were a mass of white flowers and verdant foliage, Evergreens, interspersed with lilies, lay across the sacred desk and hung in festoons to the floor. Broad bands of evergreen, profusely overlaid with lilies and clematis, enveloped the altar rails. White roses and evergreens, united in one large cross, rose just back of the coffin and in front of the pulpit. The casket rested upon a base of clematis and evergreens. On the lid lay a shock of wheat fully ripe and fit for the master's use. Over the center rested a crown of lilies, roses, and ivy. At the foot lay a wreath of clematis and geraniums. Distinguished Persons in Attendance 
Within, or near the altar, sat four aged friends of deceased and pallbearers, George Wansey, Captain Hiram Putnam, E.B. Culver, Joseph Savage. The remainder of the pallbearers were Mayor F.E. Carroll, E.B. Judson, C.B. Sedgwick, James I. Bagg, Dr. H.B. Wilbur, Honorable Dennis McCarthy, Dr. Lyman Clary, and N.F. Graves. The members of the Board of Education occupied seats in the center aisle. President Orrin Welsh, S.M. Rust, D.L. Pickard, D.P. Phelps, John McCarthy, John Yorkie, William Dunian, and Superintendent Edward Smith were present. Among the clergy present were the following. Reverend A. Crooks, Wesleyan M.E. Church, Reverend J.A. Frazee, First Ward Presbyterian, Reverend A.F. Beard, Plymouth, Reverend J.S. Bacon, Fourth Presbyterian, Reverend M.L. Berger, Reformed Church, Reverend Mr. Thurston, M.E. Church, Reverend Dr. Eddy, Central Baptist, Reverend P.W. Emmons, Pastor, Young Men's Christians Association, Reverend J. Thomas, Reverend, Reverend Charles Queen, Reverend William H. Brown of Zion Church, Reverend Dr. Cohen of Concord Congregation, Reverend N. M. Mann of Rochester Unitarian Church, Reverend Mr. Canfield, Church of Reconciliation, Utica, Reverend A. F. Bailey, Independent Church, Canastota, Reverend W. P. Tilden, New South Free Church, Boston, Reverend T. J. Mumford, Christian Register, Boston, Reverend Frederick Frothingham, Buffalo. The pulpit was occupied by Reverend S. R. Calthrop, William Lloyd Garrison, Bishop Logwin, C. D. B. Mills, and Reverend T. J. Mumford. The Funeral Services The services were opened by the choir singing the anthem, Cast thy burden on the Lord, and he will sustain thee and comfort thee. The opening prayer was offered by Reverend Mr. Calthrop. Prayer of Reverend Mr. Calthrop Infinite Father, God of light and love, we are assembled here today to thank Thee for everything. We bless Thy name for the beautiful world Thou hast given us. We thank Thee for all the kindly relations between man and man, and for the tender family ties that Thou hast given us. Here, in the midst of tears, we bless Thee for death, for that beautiful angel of thine whom thou dost send to each of us in turn, saying with silent and gentle voice, Son or daughter, come up higher. And so, O Father, while many hearts shall feel a weariness today, and all shall feel that something noble has gone out of the world, we, nevertheless, with the spirit of him who lies here, bless thy name that thou hast received him to thyself. He loved thee in this world, and did try with all the might that was in him to do thy will here. He saw thy face here, and rejoiced in it, and would that all men would rejoice in the same. Father, we bless thee for the benediction of his life, and thank thee that thou didst put it into his heart to be such an one. In the name of him who lies silent before us, we bless thee for the true and 
beautiful influences that taught him to be a Christian and a true man. Above all, in duty to him, we thank thee for the beautiful manifestations of love that he saw in Jesus Christ. We thank thee for all that Jesus was to him personally. We thank thee that the shadow of that beautiful cross fell on his life, a mingled command and benediction, and that he took it up and carried it all his days. We thank thee, Father in heaven, that as Jesus was so, he strove to be in this world with humble heart, never thinking that he had obtained, nevertheless pressing toward the mark ever. We thank thee that thou didst put it into his heart to love the poor that Jesus loved, that he did take up the cause of the oppressed as a precious legacy from the Master's hand, that he desired ever, as Jesus did, to go about doing good, to put down the kingdom of wrong, and to establish the kingdom of right, to minister to the poor, the fatherless, the oppressed, and them that had no helper. We thank thee for the large, noble heart of this man, who said that all mankind was his brother. We pray thee, thee, dear Father, that, as the light has been so plainly manifested before us, we may be led to love it more than ourselves, lest town and country may feel shrunken because one just man has gone. O Father, send down his Spirit upon us, and grant that we may take up the work just where he laid it down, with thanksgiving to thee that we are for thy sake and for man's to do it. We thank thee for all these things, in the name of him who was the leader, the teacher, the brother of him who has gone up higher. Reverend T. J. Mumford of Dorchester read appropriate selections from Scripture. The choir sang a hymn to the tune of Brattle Street, when followed the remarks of Mr. C. D. B. Mills. We are here today, friends, to testify to a common grief where all of us are mourners, each one bearing within his bosom the sense of personal bereavement. We come here not as the want of friends generally on such occasion to testify our respect to the departed and to express the sympathy of our hearts to the stricken family, to perform the last offices in the memory of one kindly regarded and in a general way esteemed. But we come here as participants in a great sorrow, each of us to express sympathy with the other in our common bereavement. Our several domestic circles have been broken. Society at large is stricken with a great sorrow, for a great soul that has lived among us has departed. Not merely the society with which our brother was connected, not merely the denomination to which he belonged and in which he sustained so worthily his place, not merely those who with him had seen the early period of his life and the matured experiences of manhood and womanhood, but the community at large, persons of all conditions and all ages, little children as well as aged men and aged women, all were bound to this brother by ties of sympathy and love, and a common grief is in the hearts of all. This soul, that as a saintly presence came among us and spent those years of light, more than a quarter of a century, was distinguished 
as we all know, for those qualities of mind and character that endeared him to human souls. He was distinguished for the benevolence of his spirit, the exhaustless love that glowed in his bosom, the tender sympathy which he bestowed, not only upon his immediate household and circle of friends, but that reached abroad to all. For this man was the friend of all. He had universable sympathy reaching out to mankind who were all his brethren. In the last century, the hut of a noble Indian, Logan, chief of the Cayugas, is said to have been recognized by his brethren as they passed it. By the inscription, Here lies the friend of the white man. But upon the door of that unpretending house, standing open, standing upon yonder hill slope, might have been inscribed, through all those years, here dwells the friend of all men. Here was one whose heart was large enough to take in all humanity, one whose sympathies went out to high and low, and especially to the poor, to the wronged, to those who were friendless and lacked a helper. None such came to his door and went empty away. Our brother was distinguished for his moral courage as well as for his tenderness. The kind sensibilities that belonged to woman were blended with the prudence and firmness of manhood. Early in life, as one who is here will doubtless tell you, he espoused the cause of the American slave. The sufferings of that much injured race touched his heart, and through the years of his residence in our city, as well as before coming here, he devoted himself with unwavering fidelity to the cause of the slave, and it is occasion for congratulation today that his eyes were permitted to see their full emancipation. There was no race and no class of men under the heavens to whom his large sympathies did not reach. He came into our midst, as we know, invited in early days by the Unitarian Society of this city. He came here as a preacher of righteousness and to illustrate the principles of virtue. He has left behind him no strong safe filled with the stocks and scripts that men seek, and yet I think that the stocks he left behind, deposited not in the iron safe, but in the human heart, are precious beyond the power of arithmetic to tell. We know that his life was full, round, and perfect. To the very end it was fittingly worthy of itself, and of the aim to which it was devoted. His character bore the most careful inspection. It was quite as good, if not better than, what appeared to the public and came under the general eye. Wherever you found this man, you found that he was true to the ideal of his own nature. He has been faithful to truth. He has been a friend to the black man and the red man, as well as to the white man, and to the poor, as well as to the rich. I think it belongs to us to appropriate the lessons of that life, to partake as we may of the sacrament that is before us, to remember that the presence that was with us has become transfigured and transplanted to the skies, that we are to see the face and hear the voice no more, 
The highest scripture is but a fragment of the universal volume, and the divinest soul of history is but a broken light through which God irradiates us with a beam of his own effulgence, a partial and comparatively feeble hint of the infinite truth and beauty. I have heard that this earth undergoes a steady amelioration, that the volcanoes are less numerous today and their outbreaks less violent than they were when our planet was younger, that the noxious gases which more or less impregnate the air are diminishing in amount, and that there is more life in the sunbeam, more ozone in the air, evolved as it is by fragrant flowers, that the atmosphere we inspire is becoming more wholesome, more fit to nourish human life, I think also that in the moral world there is an amelioration, that we, as we look back through the ages that are past, we see great souls who have contributed to increase the ozone in the moral atmosphere, that human affection is purer and sweeter since Jesus lived and loved, and that the inheritance left by the man of sorrows, leaving history at the age of 33, never has been, never can be consumed. It works on, enriching, blessing human souls forever. This mortal has put on immortality, and as we revert to that saintly presence that late walked among us, smiling its benignities into all eyes, pouring joy and strength into so many hearts, doing manfully the battle of life in our midst, we feel that he has enriched the earth, has made all places, our own city and neighborhood especially, more wholesome for high, saintly living. Reminded afresh beside this open grave of the great realities, the things alone of worth for mortals, reminded also of the great possibilities, made more easy henceforth through this soul's victory, for noble human life that open before us all, alas, for us if we receive not the quickening, and go on each with firm purpose, with persistent spirit, to carry forward, toward completion, the great designs to which our brother devoted with undying love his entire life. Remarks of William Lloyd Garrison The next speaker was William Lloyd Garrison. He read from manuscript. If I have ever coveted that rare gift of speech, whereby the deep emotions of the soul are enabled to find something like an adequate expression, I do so on this occasion. But alas, by no command of language can I hope to do any justice to my feelings or to your own. We are participating in common in a great bereavement. These mourning children have lost one of the best of fathers, one of the wisest of counselors and guides. I have lost a most affectionate and unswerving friend, an early and untiring co-worker in the broad field of freedom and humanity, a brother beloved incomparably beyond all blood relationship. Syracuse has lost one of its most useful and esteemed citizens, the nation, one of the worthiest of its sons, the world, one of the purest, most philanthropic, most divinely actuated of all its multitudinous population. In him, 
All the elements of goodness, mercy, and truth were so equally blended as to form a character as perfect and beautiful as it is in the scope of ages to produce. What could surpass his habitual gentleness and tenderness of spirit, the modesty of his nature, his self-abnegation, his moral intrepidity in times of fiery trial, his inflexible adherence to fundamental principles, his ready espousal of every righteous cause, in conflict with a corrupt, overmastering public sentiment, his compassionate sympathy for every phase of human degradation and misery, his generous disposition to relieve the necessities of the poor and needy, his varied labors to establish the kingdom of righteousness in the earth. Like Job, he was a perfect and upright man, one who feared God and eschewed evil, so that when the ear heard him, it blessed him. When the eye saw him, it gave witness to him. Because he delivered the poor that cried, and the fatherless, and him that had none to help him, the blessings of him that was ready to perish came upon him, and he caused the widow's heart to ring for joy. He was eyes to the blind, and feet was he to the lame, and the cause which he knew not he searched out. Never was a portraiture more accurately drawn than this, and if our departed friend had been the first to sit for it, I could not have been more strikingly exact in all its lineaments. Some of his other distinguishing characteristics are felicitously portrayed by Wordsworth in his description of the happy warrior as one who comprehends his trust and to the same keeps faithful with a singleness of aim, and therefore does not stop nor lie in wait for wealth or honors or for worldly state whom they must follow, on whose head must fall, like showers of mana if they come at all, whose powers shed round him in the common strife, or mild concerns of ordinary life, a constant influence, a peculiar grace, but who, if he be called upon to face, some awful moment to which heaven has joined, great issues, good or bad, for humankind, is happy as a lover, and attired with sudden brightness, like a man inspired, and, through the heat of conflict, keeps the law, in calmness made, and sees what he foresaw, or if an unexpected call succeed, come when it will, is equal to the need, whom neither shape or danger can dismay, nor thought of tender happiness betray, who, whether praise of him, must walk the earth for ever, and to noble deeds give birth, or he must fall to sleep without his fame, and leave a dead, unprofitable name, finds comfort in himself and in his cause, and while the mortal mist is gathering draws, his breath in confidence of heaven's applause, this is the happy warrior, this is he, whom every man in arms should wish to be. Such, in the very letter and spirit, was Samuel Joseph May. Witness half a century of active participation in all the leading reforms of the age. Witness the temptations, trials, sacrifices, 
perils to which he willingly subjected himself in the service of the enslaved millions at the South, until it was granted unto him to see their fetters broken and to join with them in singing the song of Jubilee. It is now more than forty years since I made his acquaintance and happily secured his friendship, the value of which to me subsequently proved to, beyond, to be beyond all price. I shall always gratefully remember that he was among the very earliest to take me by the hand and bid me Godspeed in my labors for the immediate and unconditional abolition of American slavery. In his printed Recollections of the Anti-Slavery Conflict, he generously acknowledges his deep indebtedness to me on hearing my first lectures on slavery in Boston in the autumn of 1830, adding that they gave a new direction to his thoughts, a new purpose to his ministry. However that may have been, I am sure that I have felt far more indebted to him, for without his encouraging words and zealous cooperation, I should have lost much of the inspiration that enabled me to battle persistently against all opposing forces. At that time, the pastor of a small Unitarian church in Brooklyn, Connecticut, and the occupant of the only Unitarian pulpit in that state, he had no slight cross to bear, no inconsiderable amount of theological odium to confront on account of his alleged doctrinal heresies, and he therefore might have plausibly pleaded that he had already as heavy a load as he could well carry without espousing any other disreputable issue, but it was not in his nature to consult expediency where duty was plainly revealed, nor to measure the amount of proscription he was willing to bear for righteousness' sake. If it must be so, he was ready to be branded as a fanatic or an incendiary, as he had been a heretic. No son of thunder was he, indeed, but eminently a son of consolation, Yet, to the mildness of a John, he united the firmness and moral courage of a Paul when called to meet the solemn issues of the times, avoiding all violations of good taste and wisely circumspect in his utterances, he nevertheless could speak in such tones of rebuke and warning as to make the ears of hardened transgressors tingle and at the same time was quick to perceive where simple entreaty might be effectually substituted for harsh impeachment. He had no taste for controversy as such, no man disliked it more. As much as he lieth in you, live peacefully with all men, was with him a favorite apostolic injunction, and he continually overflowed with the milk of human kindness, but he felt none the less sensibly the obligation to declare the whole counsel of God, as revealed to his own soul, whether men would hear or whether they would forbear. What he sought to know was the truth. What he stood ready at all odds to maintain was the right. If he was a heretic, he had still unwavering faith in God. If he was on any occasion a disturber of the peace, it was only in the sense in which prophets and apostles, saints and martyrs have been. If he stood in a minority, sometimes alone, it was because he could not be tempted by any consideration to go with the multitude to do evil. His standard of judgment was very simple, and, so far as speculative theology was concerned, broadly Catholic. 
I ask not, to quote his own language, what may be a man's profession or faith. I ask not what may be a man's creed or system of theology. I ask only whether he gives unequivocal evidence of his fidelity to God and his love of the Father by his fidelity to the right and his love of the brethren, especially his poor brethren. And truly, in the light of such an example as he set, of such a life as he lived, how worthless is every sectarian shibboleth. Men are to be known by their fruits, not by their professions, and what a prolific fruit-bearer was he, was here. For modes of faith let graceless zealots fight. His can't be wrong whose life is in the right. If ever there was an Israelite indeed in whom there was no guile, he existed in the person of him whose mortal remains lie before us. I can conceive of no society beyond the grave, however pure and exalted, into which he may not enter, and be received as a worthy guest, I as a brother beloved and a member of the household of saints, in good and regular standing. Let it be remembered that if the same averment had been made of the great founder of Christianity in his day, it would have been deemed shocking impiety by all who made any pretensions to soundness of religious faith. For was not he also a heretic, I of the worst type? Had he not eaten with publicans and sinners? Did he not audaciously impeach the piety of priest and Levite, and recognize as worthy of imitation and praise a hate hated, heretical Samaritan? Had he not been convicted of blasphemy? Had he not a devil? For myself, raising here no question as to whose theological opinions are sound or unsound, I feel that, as the fearless advocate of liberty or conscience, as against all dogmatic authority and ecclesiastical rule, Mr. May is entitled to our common gratitude, for, However dissimilar we may be in our scriptural, scriptural interpretations or religious convictions, he contended for us all equally as for himself. Like the ap apostle, he regarded it as a small matter to be judged of man's judgment. Like that same heroic spirit, he inculcated the duty of proving all things in an independent investigation every one for himself, taking care to hold fast that which is good. Like a greater than Paul, he asked, Why judge ye not of yourselves what is right? Perhaps to no one in our country is the cause of free inquiry, in its broadest signification, more indebted than to this world-embracing friend and brother. Mark Anthony, lamenting over the dead body of Caesar, exclaims, the evil that men do lives after them. The good is oft interred with their bones. Of the truthfulness of his first assertion there can be no question. The evil that men do survives their earthly existence and not unfrequently goes down from generation to generation. But by what law of providence does it happen that the good is ever buried with their bones? Believe not the statement. Evil has no such advantage over good. The same conditions, the same chances, the same limitations apply to each. But what a difference in quality! For only the actions of the just smell sweet and blossom in the dust. Yes, 
Even in the dust they blossom and bear fruit abundantly for the nourishment of a long line of posterity. Beautifully has the great master of poetry illustrated this diffusive power of goodness in the oft-quoted couplet, How far the little candle throws its beams, so shines a good deed in the naughty world. And it retains its luster long after the removal of the mind that conceived and the hand that executed it. What one of the multitudinous good acts of our beloved friend, what one of the many grand testimonies uttered by him with such boldness and fidelity can possibly become extinct in his grave? These have entered into the general life of the community. They have widely affected the popular conscience and heart. They have greatly lessened and will continue to lessen the sum of human sorrow and wretchedness. They have powerfully contributed towards shaping the destiny of the nation. Though dead, he yet speaketh, and his spirit still walks abroad in all its quickening power. With what zeal and persistency did he give himself to the cause of popular education, with all its far-reaching consequences, from the primary school to the university, how well he comprehended its priceless value to the millions, its indispensable necessity to the maintenance of free institutions. As the natural sequence to his anti-slavery labors, how deep was the interest he evinced in the instruction of the benighted freedmen of the South? No one ever responded more warmly to the divine mandate, let there be light, than himself. To that most blessed and fundamentally important movement, which seeks the abolishment of the drinking customs of society, he gave an early adhesion and an earnest support. Alas, that these pernicious customs still prevail so widely, carrying with them a legion of evils. Yet, had it not been for the temperance reformation, the land would have been given over to intoxication beyond all reasonable hope of recovery. It has brought sunshine and joy and health and happiness to tens of thousands of homes, and saved millions from the liability of going down to drunkards' graves." It has greatly diminished insanity, pauperism, and crime, strengthened private and public virtue, accelerated the general prosperity, and augmented the national wealth. Still, it needs all possible encouragement and support, for the obstacles thrown in the pathway of its complete success continue to be of a formidable nature. The departure, therefore, of one whose example and testimony were so efficient in its behalf is a very serious loss. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. If I mistake not, the very first reformatory movement which challenged the attention and won the advocacy of Mr. May was that for the promotion of universal peace. This must have been nearly half a century ago, at the very commencement of his ministerial career. Aside from the teachings of Jesus, to no one probably was he so indebted for his deep-seated convictions on this subject as to the venerable Noah Worcester, of blessed memory. His whole being seemed to be permeated with the divine element of peace, as was the Savior's, whom he loved and revered so profoundly, and whose example he constantly held up as worthy of all imitation. His spirit was ever attuned to the angelic song, 
Glory to God in the highest, on earth peace, good will towards men. Peace radiated from his countenance, found fitting cadence in the music of his voice, made fragrant his daily walk and conversation, while he clearly saw that, in the divine providence, war had both its admonitory and retributive uses, he saw not less clearly that, were half the power that fills the world with terror, were half the wealth bestowed on camps and courts, given to redeem the human mind from error, there were no need of arsenals and forts. The warrior's name would be a name abhorred, and every nation that should lift it gain, its head against a brother on its forehead would wear forever more the curse of Cain that just prior to his being summoned hence he was permitted to hear of the ratification of an honorable treaty of peace between Great Britain and the United States, whereby all their grave difficulties are to be amicably settled, must have given to him inexpressible gratification, causing a feeling kindred to that of aged Simeon, when he exclaimed, Lord, let now thy servant depart in peace, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation." In view of all the circumstances, it is the most cheering event in the history of international arbitration and cannot fail to exercise a salutary influence upon the nations of the earth in the bloodless adjustment of their variances with each other. In that case, it will be a long stride towards the goal of universal peace, which, whenever reached, shall be the fulfillment of the inspiring prediction no more shall nation against nation rise, nor ardent warriors meet with hateful eyes, nor fields with gleaming steel be covered o'er, the brazen trumpets kindle rage no more, but useless lances into scythes shall bend, and the broad falchion in a plowshare end. Then palaces shall rise, the joyful sun shall finish what his short-lodged sire begun. Their vines a shadow to their race shall yield, and the same hand that sowed shall reap the field. Farewell, at the longest a brief farewell, friend of liberty, of temperance, of peace, of universal brotherhood, of equal rights for the whole human race, without distinction of clime, color, sex, or nationality. Farewell, lover of God and of man, without partiality and without hypocrisy, ready for every good word and work, benefactor of the poor and outcast, succorer of the hunted fugitive slave, sympathizer with the widow and orphan in their distress, rescuer of the wandering and lost, strengthener of the weak, and lifter up of the bowed down. Farewell, sweetest, gentlest, most loving, and most loved of men. Gone to the heavenly Father's rest, the flowers of Eden round thee blowing, and on thine ear the murmurs blessed of Shiloah's water softly flowing, beneath that tree of life which gives to all the earth its healing leaves. In the white robe of angels clad, and wandering by that sacred river, whose streams of holiness make glad the city of our God forever. Gentlest of spirits, not for thee our tears are shed, our sighs are given, 
Why mourn to know thou art a free partaker of the joys of heaven, finished thy work, and kept thy faith in Christian firmness unto death, and beautiful as sky and earth, and autumn's sun in downward going, the blessed memory of thy worth around thy place of slumber glowing. Remarks of Bishop Logwin Bishop Logwin of the African M.E. Church said, I would not tax your patience for one moment were it not for the intimate relationship that has existed between this dear friend and myself for over a quarter of a century. I had commenced laboring for my people here, the colored race, a few years before the Reverend Mr. May came to this village, as it was then. It was a dark place. No friends, no encouragement, a solitary wilderness for the colored man. I began my labors as a poor boy, teaching school here, and I shall never forget the joy that our dear friend brought me when I made his acquaintance. From that hour until his death I never met him, in the darkest moment or amid the most fearful trials of my people, but that a ray of sunlight would strike my breast from his countenance. While these friends have been speaking of him, I have been thinking of all the oppressed and afflicted he has relieved and comforted. Those who have known him as long as I have can say that there are no words that can exalt him as a man and as a brother of humanity. He was a brother to all. I feel like weeping with his friends and his children. He was as dear to me as anyone could be. Never did I go to his house for counsel or for help in vain. Enemies were prowling around, but he was always true, and always ready to befriend and welcome me to his table, to his study, and to his fireside. He was truly a friend to humanity, everywhere, and under all circumstances of life. As one of the colored race, I can testify heartily that he was a brother to us as well as to others. If I could say all that was in my heart, I would say much more, but you have heard much. Being the only one of my race to stand here, I thought I must say a word about the kind heart and noble life of the dear brother lying before us. Oh, you know that a man who, twenty years ago, would prove a brother to my hated, oppressed, and enslaved people would prove a brother to all. I can only say, God bless you, my dear friends, his children and relatives. Follow in his footsteps. Remarks of Rev. W. P. Tilden of Boston It has been said that love will always bear one word more, if it be said in simplicity and sincerity, though I should hardly dare attempt to say that word now, after all that has been said, did I not stand here as the representative of others, as well as to speak a simple word for myself. The brief notes I hold in my hand will explain what I mean. Just before I left Boston, I received these letters, one from the Reverend Charles Lowe, known to all the Unitarians in this place and throughout the country, as the beloved Secretary of the American Unitarian Association, for some years past, having recently resigned because of ill health to the regret of all who knew him. He says, My dear Mr. Tilden, 
I write a line to express my earnest hope that you will represent the association as they have asked you to at the funeral of Mr. May. If I could go, I should accompany you, for not only is my personal feeling for him very tender and near, but I recognize so strongly his eminent service to our cause that I should be glad by my presence to express it. I hope if you go you will say something publicly to testify to his connection with the association and his efficient service. He has been acting as a missionary ever since he left the charge of his society. With only such interruption as his health or other engagements made necessary, and the peculiar respect he had won all through the state in which his work was given, and his rare faculty of saying just the right word, enabled him to do what no one else could have done so well. He was our counselor, and he was for the societies in his diocese, as he used to call it, an advisor, an inciter to zeal, and a dear friend. If I were still secretary of the association, I should feel that one of my best supporters was gone. Ever truly yours, Charles Lowe. The other note is from Mr. Shippen, who says, in requesting you to represent this association at the funeral of Mr. May, I heartily accord with all that Mr. Lowe has just written, and hope that at Syracuse you may express, in behalf of our association, as well as of the Brotherhood of the Ministry, our deep gratitude for the noble and faithful life of our beloved and departed brother. To many of us he was a father, rather, by his benignant and gracious presence, illustrating to our hearts that tenderness and loving-kindness toward the humblest and least of men, which our faith rejoices to ascribe to the infinite Father as his dearest attribute, please express, especially to the family and friends, our heartfelt sympathy. Very cordially yours, Rush R. Shippen. First, let me express to the dear family of our departed brother our heartfelt and cordial sympathy, the heartfelt sympathy of the whole denomination. For who is there among us all that did not know and love your dear and honored father? And yet we have no word of condolence, but rather of congratulation, thanking God with you today that through his loving kindness you have been blessed with such a noble father. As to Brother May's connection with the Unitarian Association, it would hardly be proper for me to say a word today, were it not that in his own heart he traced much of the love he bore for his fellow men and the interest he felt in the great reforms of the age to their principles, early engraven upon his heart. And the secret of his success as a preacher, I am certain, was that he, so thoroughly, clear down to the depths of his soul, believed every word that he preached. It was that which touched people's hearts when they heard him. They said, Here is a man who really believes what he teaches. When he speaks of the fatherhood of God, and when he speaks of the brotherhood of man, we know that he believes it, and therefore we are ready to listen to him and bid him Godspeed in his work. Yes, Brother May had a deep and living conviction of the simple truths of Unitarian Christianity. And, oh, how simple they are! The fatherhood of God, the sonship of humanity, the brotherhood of the race, sin, its own sorrow, holiness, its own sweet and blessed reward, the upper mansions opening right out of this world, human love beginning here to be perfected beyond. 
These were the truths that in earliest childhood took hold of his heart. That was the source of his theology. To call God Father, that was the source of his philanthropy. He really believed that God was his Father. He really believed that man was his brother, and he sought to live that out. That was what made his philanthropy so broad. It was colorblind, and it is the only kind of blindness that I know of that indicates a clear vision. He could not see anything of the distinctions made by man in any of God's creatures. It was the divine image he saw everywhere. And so, whenever he saw a human being there, he saw his brother, a child of the same heavenly father. I should, if I had time, tell you how well dear brother May was loved in other places besides Syracuse and in other states besides New York. You have enjoyed him here now for twenty-six years. It seems to you, I suppose, as if nobody loved him as you did. I tell you that wherever he went, there were those that loved him just as well as you. It was my privilege to be one of his parishioners thirty years ago when he went fresh from the anti-slavery field of labor and settled at South Situate. I was then a young man working in a carpenter shop, but yet I longed for the Christian ministry. Yet how should I get into it? God knows whether I ever should, although I rather think he would have found a way for me if Brother May had not come like an angel of God and taken right hold of my hand, hardened with toil, and clasped it as only dear brother May could clasp a hand, and aided me with his counsel and sympathy. Oh, think how many have been clasped by that dear hand, and how many hearts have been cheered by that clasp. When he came to situate, he drew us all to him by this strong human sympathy. He carried our sicknesses and bore our sorrows. And it was wonderful that, while he was so deeply interested in all these various objects of philanthropy, his personal interest for every individual in his parish was so deep and constant. Mr. Garrison has called him a son of consolation. Oh, he was that indeed. Seldom do we see united that deep and tender sympathy and that moral heroism which made him ready to do and dare for any cause that he believed to be the cause of God and humanity. I want to emphasize one thought before we go hence that has already been mentioned sweetly and hopefully, that is, that our brother is not dead. God does not let him die even here. His influence will live in our hearts, long to enkindle within us something of the light that shone through him for God and humanity. Of all the men that I have ever known, I do not recall one who has so fully, as I think, realized the words of the poet, I live to hold communion. <clears throat> But it is because our brother lived those glorious truths that now that he has risen, he has taken up all our hearts with him. The closing prayer was made by Reverend Mr. Frothingham of Buffalo. The choir sang, Nearer my God to thee, nearer to thee, e'en though it be a cross that raiseth me, still all my song shall be nearer my God to thee, nearer my God to thee, 
nearer to thee. Reverend Mr. Calthrop announced that the services in the church were closed. Many who had been unable on account of the crowd to get into the church would doubtless be glad to hear the services at the grave. He then pronounced the benediction. Services at the Grave The body was interred at Oakwood on the Wilkinson plot, and beside the grave of Lucretia Coffin, wife of Samuel Joseph May, born in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, died in Syracuse May 6, 1865. Among the first to reach the cemetery were the Sunday school children of the Unitarian Church, who had been unable to find seats in the audience room. They were formed in two lines from the mall to the place of sepulture. The grave was also surrounded by large numbers of people. The services were begun by the children singing, In that sweet by and by, by and by we shall meet on that beautiful shore. Reverend Mr. Calthrop said they were called there as sympathizing hearts, in one sense mourning ones, in still another rejoicing ones. In olden times, when an Egyptian king died, before the burial any were given the opportunity to give evidence as to the worth of the deceased. If the verdict were unfavorable, he was buried among the unworthy ones. If favorable, his place of sepulture was chosen among kings. Where should the burial place of Reverend Mr. May be? The family of the deceased had first assembled and spoken their minds. Then the society had gathered, and then men from abroad had just pronounced their estimate of the deceased. Last of all was that general assembly. Any one of those present had the right to come forward and give their opinion. Had any a story of wrong and suffering to which the departed had refused to give ear, from him we had a great lesson to learn. Syracuse must not be less thoughtful for noble things because a just man has gone. We must take up the noble cause just where he laid it down, where we laid it down. Reverend Mr. C. wished to say a word of encouragement to any young man who might be present. He hoped they would be ambitious. He who lay there was Viscount of Goodwill, Earl and Lord of the Domain of Love. He had hated only vice and meanness and selfishness. He would speak, if he could, and tell all to take up the cause which Jesus loved and follow it, though it lead to the cross and to the grave. President Andrew D. White of Cornell University said there lay before them the best Christian he had ever known. His presence had been a continual benediction upon us for thirty years. His kindness was the deepest and noblest Christian charity to all God's creatures. His remembrance of Mr. May extended back to the time when he, the speaker, was a child. From that time, when he first came among us, the young men of Syracuse had known Mr. May as a friend and counselor. His courage was undoubted. When the riots occurred in New York, the speaker was in London. He had feared that the disturbances would extend to Syracuse and that Mr. M. would be among the first attacked. A lady had said to him, Have no fears for Mr. May. He is one of the most courageous men I ever saw. As a counselor and friend, Mr. May was unsurpassed. 
They had heard the reading of the Sermon on the Mount, and the words had seemed prophetic of the deceased. He had stood up and said that he had aided Mr. Boardman when it was a fearful thing to do so. Was he a Christian? Judged by all the words of the Savior and his disciples, this man was the noblest and purest Christian that had ever lived. On the last afternoon of Mr. May's life, he had enjoyed his company and received his blessing. If we could obtain the blessing that would come from his example, we should certainly merit the blessing of God. Reverend Mr. Mumford said he had been reared in the South. His father had been a slaveholder, and he himself had carried a Bible in his pocket to defend slavery and skepticism. Samuel J. May visited the town where we loved, and he was inspired by a desire to follow him and in some measure speak the truths he taught. He closed his remarks with a poetic quotation. C. D. B. Mills followed, after which Rev. E. W. Mundy said it was impossible to tell all that was in the hearts of those present. Our father, as they used to call him, had gone from them, and their hearts followed his form in affection even to the grave. They looked with tearful disappointment on the grave which was about to hide him from their sight. What could he not do for them? A representative of the young clergy, Mr. May, had taken that class by the hand in hours of darkness and had bade them good chase. When he saw Mr. M. last, it was on the last afternoon of his life. His face was fresh and cheerful, and the clasp of his hand was strong. It was near the close of the day, but before the evening had far advanced, he had passed away. Mr. Mundy closed his remarks with a beautiful poetic quotation and prayer. Reverend Mr. Calthrop announced that the people would sing, Rise, my soul, and stretch thy wings, to the tune of Amsterdam. The coffin was lowered into the grave. Strong hearts of faith looked up to heaven. The eyes of mourners and dear friends filled with tears as they saw the grave unwrap and shut from their sight forever him they had loved so well. But most beautiful and impressive ceremonies were to follow. One by one the Sunday school children dropped upon the cat casket a bouquet of flowers. Now and then one would pause, look into the grave, and tears would fl follow the flowers. That was all. The communion had closed. The friends turned away, leaving the Reverend Samuel Joseph May, the departed philanthropist, the patriot, and the Christian, to rest in Oakwood Cemetery. No, to live in the hearts of the people, to rest in heaven. Hugh here. That's the end of the newspaper article. And I want to back up a couple of paragraphs to that section about the singing in order to explain why I felt it was important to read that entire article. Reverend Mr. Calthrop announced that the people would sing, Rise my soul and stretch thy wings to the tune of Amsterdam. If you know anything about sacred harp shape note music, then that's familiar to you, and you have a general sense of what that sounded like. However, I can give you a much better sense of what that sounded like 
by directing you to my show notes where there is a YouTube link, or you can just listen to the end of this episode. I double-checked, and that video that I'll be including in this episode is under a Creative Commons license, so there's no obstacle to me just uh, including the audio in the episode, and uh, you can listen to it in full after the closing. In the next episode, I'm going to be reading the published work about the death of Samuel J. May, which includes most of what was printed here in this newspaper article. And I'm sharing this music with you to accentuate why I am taking the time to do one episode on each of those. That published, polished book that came out sometime after the death of Samuel J. May is a valuable historical resource, and by all means, I am thrilled that I was able to, to download it. It's available for free. The, the link will be there in the show notes for the next episode for you to do the same. And in some ways, it's more detailed just in the, in the clinical sense of all the, the names and the, the people as the uh, names of the people as they gathered to pay homage to the reverend. But I can't overstate the value of newspaper archives in the invaluable benefit of getting the sights and sounds, getting the immediate sense from someone who was there at the scene. And that's what newspaper correspondents of that time give you. Remember, all that comes to us in any given newspaper is what a particular correspondent could get down through their ears and onto the paper and hence through the telegraph lines to the home office or if it was a a correspondent in the same town, from their jottings to the typesetter. And they could only take down so much. So any one correspondent only gave you, for the most part, one facet of that event. And in this case, we have sights and smells and sounds that, for as far as I can tell, we get Nowhere else. We know about the clematis, we know about the evergreens, and we know what it sounded like. We have a really good sense of what it sounded like to stand there in Oakwood Cemetery as they were getting ready to lower the body of Samuel J. May into the grave. And for my money, that's that makes all of the time I spend digging into these newspaper archives, worth it. So next time, we'll be delving into that uh, published book, In Memoriam, The Death of Samuel J. May. Thanks for listening, and until next time, seek context.
This is Hugh Yeeman, and you've been listening to the Historic Headlines podcast. Thanks, as always, to Tom Trinisky for all his fabulous work on FultonHistory.com. Without his free repository of old newspapers, this podcast wouldn't exist. Oh, he'd fly through the air with the greatest of ease. A daring young man on the flying trapeze. His movements were graceful, the girls he could please. And my love, he stole them away.